Welcome back to another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the exact same thing. Why do you do this podcast? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we find ourselves often becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, in 2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with subjects to learn about them from them. Today's guest is no exception to that. David Shepard is the MLA for Edmonton City Centre. He was first elected in 2015 under the orange wave that swept Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP into power. During the interview, we talk about his growing up in a conservative household and how a youth mentoring program in southern Alberta helped him become who he is today. We also talk about the four years in government and also his new role in the opposition benches as the critic for health. So with that being said, enjoy cross-border interviews featuring David Shepard. First off... David, thank you very much. Do you mind if I call you David? Not at all. Awesome. David, greatly appreciate it. Um, thanks for doing it short notice, too. Uh, the first question I always ask any politician or former politician is, where did your sense of duty come from? Sense of duty. That's an interesting question. You know, I grew up in a very conservative religious home. So... Certainly, a sense of guilt was set in (laughs) pretty early in life. But, you know, with that kind of comes a a bit of a sense of duty, certainly a sense of following the rules. You know, and while that's something I have kind of left behind, I'm no longer a man of faith, as it were. And though certainly there are many aspects of that upbringing that were more problematic than beneficial, I have carried out of that some very... Some, some very core parts, you know, of my of my values and the way I see the world. And I think back, in particular, to uh, a summer I spent at uh, Crozes Lake Bible Camp. So it's a camp down in southern Alberta. Spent a lot of summers there as as a teenager, doing hiking, backpacking, and uh, went back worked there as a counselor. And it was I, I really grew to love that, particularly the outdoors part and being out in the wilderness. So. In 1995, I had finished my music diploma at Grant McEwen. I was not in a great place in terms of uh, my mental and emotional health and was sort of struggling a bit with what I was going to do with that summer. <laughs> Didn't want to have to go back home, live with my parents again. It was So I applied to an outdoor leadership training program called Colts down at Crow. And Which stands for? Uh, Crow's Outdoor Leadership Training School. Okay. So got into that program. Basically, it trains people to take kids on backpacking trips as part of the camps, you know, one to three nights out in the wilderness. And so I got accepted in that program. And in that program, I went there, like I said, not in a very good state. Didn't have a lot of self-confidence. Didn't have a lot of have a lot of uh, belief in myself. But from the woman that was running the program that summer, a woman named Yin, I learned a lot about what's called servant leadership. And that's the idea that you know when you are a leader, when you're up, when you're when you're sort of up in charge of a group of people or responsible for a group of people, your job is not to exercise authority and direct them and tell them what to do. Your job is to serve them. 
So that meant being willing to sort of take on the jobs that nobody else wants to do, you know? And, and so that was kind of, that was transformative for me in sort of developing that sense of duty. What drives me then is, well, okay, well, what, how, how can I contribute in the world? How can I do, through what I do, how do I give back to other people? How do I give back to my community? And uh, I apologize for interrupting, but yeah. you didn't find that you were getting that from home life? No. <laughs> really? No. I, I, like I said, I grew up in a, in a grew up in an environment that was very authoritative. You know, that's, that's, that's the way it was. I mean, that was the, again, the sort of conservative religious model I grew up. I mean, there's, you know, certainly, and now this is not to say... You know, I don't want to want to talk about this sort of be bad mouthing my parents or anything, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, it's just recognizing that was that was that was my dad's approach and that was a way. So it, there wasn't a lot of that opportunity to really develop that constructive, collaborative sense of leadership. You, you talked about before you went to Colts. Yeah. You were in a dark place. Yeah. Was that family life? Was it personal life? Was it relationship life? Like, what brought you to that moment where you said, I need to get away and I don't need, I can't go home? Was it just a, a group of everything combining into one? I think it was a combination of a lot of factors. Again, sort of, uh, I, I, I grew up, you know, just generally not having a lot of emotional support. That's an area of my life I hadn't learned how to develop. I had high social anxiety. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. So it was, you know, I, I had a real struggle. So, I mean, certainly the social anxiety was very prevalent during the time I was at McEwen studying music. I mean, I was good at music and I did well in that respect. But uh, I didn't have a clue how to interact with people. And so that was a real challenge for me. And so a lot of it sort of stemmed out of that. I hadn't learned how to process or process emotions healthily, you know, how to build real human connection, real relationships. So that expressed itself in a number of ways, including, you know, that severe anxiety and some depression. For a politician to be so open about that, you don't come across that that often. What has brought you to this moment when you're able to talk about it that you did suffer from anxiety, you did suffer from depression? That just doesn't seem like a 2020 thing to do. <laughs> well, it's, you know, in part it was, you know, uh, when I was elected in 2015, I, I really wasn't expecting to be, you know, and... It's, I don't think a lot of your <laughs> indeed, you know, but you know, I I kind of put my name out there, and you know, at that time, I was in a process of rebuilding my life. I had, you know, uh, I continued to struggle with uh, with mental health, you know, for for quite some time. And then around two thousand five, developed some some uh, fairly serious physical health problems, you know, severe food intolerance and issues, some fairly severe digestive issues, and that was with me for quite a few years after that, and so it was almost crippling in some respects, but I had had to try to find a way through that. So it was over the process, yeah, from 2006, 2007, you know, up through 2014, kind of figuring out a bunch of stuff on my own about how I could sort of mitigate the worst of the physical symptoms, what were safe foods, what were figured out some supplement stuff. I saw so many doctors and 
natural paths and all the folks spent thousands of dollars in supplements there. They finally figured out something that kind of gave me a sense of balance. So I had, in 2014, I finished, I'd gone back to school. I finished my BA in professional communications. All of a sudden had, you know, 20, 25 hours a week back because <laughs> I've been working full-time, doing school full-time and, you know, got a new job that paid me about 20% more than I was making before. So I had a bit of income. So all of a sudden it was like, okay, I have an opportunity now to try to get out and at Actually, try to re-socialize, try to build some connections in community, try to start to put together a life again after having struggled for a really long time. So that election in 2015 sort of came out of the blue. Uh, out of the blue, yeah. And in the middle of that process, and it kind of it kind of circumvented say, it a bit. You, you don't know? go from trying to rediscover yourself, mm-hmm. trying to better yourself, to going into a election where you right. are the center of. The world at the time. <laughs> Indeed. Everyone is looking at you for support. So, I mean, the, the idea was when I ran in, in 2015, you know, uh, I, you know, I've been told, well, you're not going to beat, you know, Lori Blakeman. She's been there for 18 years. So, but you run a small campaign this year, you know, get your name out in the community. She's likely to retire in 2019. There's your chance, you know, if you work in the community in the years in between, you can pick up that seat. And so that was my goal. I thought it was going to be a relatively small investment. Ended up being a bigger campaign than I thought, but, you know, and and then all of a sudden, here I am elected. So going back to what your initial question was about, you know, sort of why am I so open about this? Well, in part, I just recognized at the time that this was going to be a challenge for me. And so I figured, well, the easiest way to deal with my own anxiety about this, you know, in my own fears is just to put it out there. Because, I mean, if I'm open about it and I just say, guess what? This exists. This is part of who I am. Then I don't have to worry about hiding it. I don't have to worry about putting it away. And I got invited to, to some events early on where they were talking about mental health. And I realized this is... Hey, this is an important conversation. Nobody was talking about this when I was struggling, you know, especially in the religious environment that I grew up in. I'm like, I need to talk about this so that other people know it's okay, that they're not alone, and that it's possible to find help, and it's possible to get better. How? Okay. So you do that. But you must hear stories while this is happening, while you're putting yourself out there, of other people going through that. Sure. How does that not weigh on you? How does, that, how does that, those stories of other people's anxiety, other people's depression not go, okay, I, I, I feel, I know what you feel, I know what you're going through, and then you have to take back and say, all these people are opening up to me, and I'm hearing all these horrible stories of how they're depressed, how they're anxious, how they're not having a good family life. How does that not weigh on you and just make you go back into your corner and become sort of recluse, recluse yourself into a corner? Well, you know, it's, for one, you know, I didn't really have people come to me that way. Okay. So, you know, when people came and talked to me, generally it was just to say, thank you. You know, I really appreciated hearing you talk about that. You know, that gives me maybe a sense of hope that's, you know, it makes me feel like, okay, I'm not alone. You know, I didn't really have too many people come up to me to sort of talk that sort of felt hopeless or where they were putting it on me or expecting me to fix their problem. Now, certainly you do get that as an MLA, you know, get some folks who come in and talk with you and sort of that sort of thing. But I mean, it's just kind of, again, I just chose in those circumstances just to be very honest and say, I get it. I've been there. I've, I've sat where you sit. Do you and still you know what? There are no easy answers. I mean, this is how I worked through it. You know, let me, these are the resources that are available. Here's the things you can do. But ultimately, you just have to recognize it's in their hands. Do you still struggle with it every day? Sure. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You know, I'm I am a lot stronger now than I than I was in 2015. You know, I'm this. I'm at the point of probably the best physical and mental health I've ever had in my life. But sure, I mean, I I still see a therapist. I still talk through some of these challenges. It is a process of growth, and I think dealing with mental health and dealing with with emotional challenges, particularly if they stem back to you know when you're a kid and sort of relate to maybe somehow you were raised. It's like an onion. <laughs> you, you keep peeling and you guys, you know, you think you got it. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's another layer you got to dig into. So, yeah, you know, I, I'm a lot stronger. I'm a lot better. It's certainly not as bad as it was. But but to be open about it, like yeah. that just shows the commitment and the strength that you have today to do that. Right. So, uh We'll come back to that in a few minutes, but I, I want to talk because you, you were open about it at the beginning. Um, you come from a conservative background. Mm. How does a kid from a conservative background become an NDP MLA? <laughs> so, what was your first uh, moment in politics? Was it an election that you can remember? Was it meeting a politician that you said, I could gravitate towards that person? My first exposure to politics was uh, was Doomsbury in Bloom County in the editorial cartoons in the Edmonton Journal. Okay. I, I remember I would just read those every every day because we get the paper and I would read those political cartoons. And I didn't know half what they were talking about, but it was fascinating. Yeah. You know, so I knew, knew all these names of U.S. political figures long before I knew any Canadian ones. But uh, then I remember, you know, social studies, grade eight, nine, you know, you know, Brian Mulready, John Turner and all that sort of stuff. Like, okay. But, you know, then when I was in high school, I think, you know, one of the elders from our church ran for the Reform Party. And so, you know, I think, yeah, when I first cast a vote, I think that's probably what I can't remember exactly. But, yeah, I probably voted conservative. I think for the Reform Party back in the the day. But, you know, when did I personally start getting really interested in and involved? Well, first interested in politics around 2007, 2008. So in the Harper era, round about when they got their first majority government and or it might have been just before that. I think it was watching the them when they're still minority. a minority, a second yeah. minority. And so I was just fascinated, kind of watching how they operated, particularly by their, their communication strategy and that sort of thing. And so just sort of just, I... It was just fascinating to me watching how they were so sort of elbows out, very aggressive. And I just sort of realized, okay, this is an interesting tactic. They're trying to make things as toxic as possible and shut things down so that nobody get nobody wants to be engaged, nobody wants to get involved except their core base. And then if they can keep them activated and engaged, that's all they need to win. Exactly. And so I was fascinated by that communications infrastructure and yeah, felt a fair bit of righteous anger and indignation about, you know, about, you know, the the lack of democracy and all these things. Started reading a lot of, uh, I think I got on Twitter around that time, so started following a lot of political journalists, Katie O'Malley, Andrew Coyne, uh, folks that were reporting out of Ottawa. So it was really federal politics that first caught my attention. Is It was around 2011, 2012 that I started following provincial politics, and as we came up with so the... Redford? Yeah, Aaron? coming up to the leadership race with Redford, and so then when she won, kind of going, oh, okay, everybody's like, ah, oh, finally, Alberta has a progressive premier, and sort of... this female be, premier. Yeah, there's, there's going to be some changes around here. So, and then so I started watching and then of course was disappointed along with everyone else and kind of watched the all the scandal that came out and just really started to recognize you know, having watched it under Harper and now under Redford and the provincial PCs just realized, you know, people 
they get away with this because people aren't engaged. Your average person doesn't know what's going on, doesn't follow what's going on, or if they do try to follow, then kind of feel, well, there's no, I can't have any impact on this. Same party's been in power forever. They're not going to listen to me. I can't even get close to an MLA. And so it was around then I was starting my communications degree. I went, you know what? Someday I'd be interested in doing this. I had gotten involved in my condo board in my building and had to deal with some toxic stuff there. And it sort of led a group of owners and sort of removing the president and changing the board. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, so you can do this. You know, it's pretty small scale, but it's possible if you if you do the work and you do the effort and you organize. And I seem to be good at that. So maybe someday I'd like to put my name up to run for office. Was it always the NDP? At that time, I started looking around and, you know, I, I definitely wasn't a conservative, definitely wasn't supporting the progressive conservatives. And so I looked at the Alberta Liberal Party and I looked at uh, Ross Sherman, who was leader at the time, and I kind of went, no. I found it very hard to find it credible. I didn't see uh, much organization, didn't see a clear message or really strong leadership. And then I looked over at the Alberta NDP and, you know, you had the core four. Brian, Rachel, and David, and Darren. And hey, pretty punchy little guerrilla strike force that they had going there. They were punching well above their weight. And certainly, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of their values were in line with mine. And I kind of went, hmm, yeah. I think that's probably where I'd hang my hat. So going to the 2015 election, you said in 2014 you finished off schooling. Yep. 2015, the budget drops in April, if I'm not uh, March. Yep. Then Prentice goes to the yeah, lieutenant governor yeah. and goes, "Hey, are you nominated at this time?" I am. So what had happened was in 2014, I was uh, involved in. I got involved in community advocacy. So I'd been involved with folks in the bike community for my last couple of years of school, and been because I was a year-round cyclist. And so at first, I was just hanging out with a bunch of folks I, I met on Twitter over beer. <laughs> then that evolved into actually doing a bit of a uh, outreach campaign in the in Bike Month, June 14, that I sort of led and coordinated, where we did an online blog and did profiles of local cyclists, and I ended up doing some media and stuff on that, and that evolved into me joining the with some folks in the Edmonton Bike Coalition to advocate for uh, funding for the uh, bike lane that's been built now on 102nd Street, just just outside the door here. Yep. So, and then that all wrapped up in November, December of 14. And so again, I had all this time in my hands. I kind of went, well, You've left. what am I going to do with this now? And I was like, I had applied on a couple of jobs as a researcher with the Alberta NDP. Didn't even get a call back. I mean, they wow. didn't know who I was. I, <laughs> I, jo- I had joined the party in September to support Rachel's leadership bid. And so uh, through, her, through her friend, I, she knew somebody within the party. So, I t- so she reached out and said, hey, I got a guy here. He's interested in volunteering. I thought maybe I could do some communications work for them, get some experience, maybe get a foot in the door. And so I sat down to meet with an organizer from the party. And, you know, they said, well, you've done all this community work. Would you be interested in maybe being a candidate? And I said, no. Because I figured they'd want me to be a name on the ballot in Fort Saskatchewan or something. And, you know, and uh, and also just uh, I was like, hey, I don't know enough about this stuff yet. You know, I've been watching politics generally, but I don't know economics yeah. up and down. I don't know all the policy. I don't know how the legislature works. So I was going to be working as a comms officer uh, on Janice Irwin's federal campaign in 2015. And then through uh, through uh, her comms guy, Bill Moore Kilgannon, he introduced me to Dave Began, who told me that they were looking for someone in Edmonton Center. And then I went, oh, well, that's my neighborhood. Okay, because my one of my things was if I run, I'm going to run where I live. And so me and Dave went for coffee a couple weeks later, and he talked me into it. 
And like, like I said, he just said, hey, it's just, you're not going to win. It's going to be a small run. So, so yeah, so I approached the Edmonton Center uh, Constituency Association for the Alberta NDP in early February, uh, went and sort of declared my interest in the candidacy at their AGM. They had their nomination meeting at the beginning of March, and boom, I was the candidate. So you, that was that quick. Oh, yeah. Wow. So the budget drops, you go to that campaign. Yep. First time you're on the ballot. First time your name's on the side. Mm-hmm. What's that feeling like? Seeing your name out there, seeing people uh, organize around you. It was it was a really interesting experience because that's the thing, right? I, I stepped up. I put my name in. I said, I want to be your candidate. Uh, these guys decided they liked me, apparently liked me a lot. And, <laughs> you know, before we know it, you know, we luck out. We've got an office right on 104th Street, downtown Edmonton, very prominent location. You know, they've taken out, a, 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 you know, a multi, you know, a $35,000 thousand-dollar line of credit, you know, folks on the Constituency Association to fund this campaign. And it's like, wow, these, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we we had a star volunteer coordinator. So all of a sudden we got massive numbers of these young volunteers from Grand McHugh and other places all coming out the door knock. It's like, okay, I guess I better take this seriously. <laughs> I better put on the game face here. So, I mean, I was, I was working full-time for the city of Edmonton, so I'd work, you know, 8 to 4.30, run home, have a bite to eat, drop into the campaign office and go door knock till till 9 o'clock, right? And then, because you're going up, like you said, an 18-year term, an 18-year MLA. Yeah. Well-known, well-respected. At that time, she was running for three parties. Yeah. Green Party, Indeed. Liberals, yeah. and the Alberta Party. <laughs> so... To everyone, it wasn't a winnable riding because they thought, it's Blakeman's riding, we'll just leave it alone. Yeah, well, if anything, I actually had people coming at me sort of saying, why are you doing this? You're going to split the vote. Exactly. So at what point during that election did you think this could actually happen? Um, After the debate. So that's when we really saw it start to turn. So there was the debate night, and literally the next night, we're out on the doors after the debate, you know, where Rachel just kind of cleaned up. And all of a sudden, there people like, you know what? I've been voting PC, you know, for, for you know, all my life. I, I just can't do it anymore. So, no, yeah, you guys got my vote. I'll vote NDP. Wow. And just started hearing that consistently, consistently, consistently. And that's when I first kind of did, wow, I, I guess this is possible. I mean, and when I said this is possible, that, oh, maybe we're going to actually get a considerable opposition here. <laughs> you know, Don't we, expect we, you know, the official opposition, right, yeah. or something. But, you know, and I was like, well, I... I I didn't allow myself to entertain the idea that I would win. I could win the seat. I just sort of said, you know what? That's no. I don't think it's worth. I don't think it's healthy to even think about that possibility. It's just head down, keep going. We'll see what happens. So, but I mean, but I sort of in the back of my head, I kind of went, it could okay, happen. Something, but something's happening. I'm here. not going to be upset if it doesn't. Right. Exactly. May fifth, election night. You see that little green or blue tick right beside your name saying, congratulations, you've been elected. <laughs> I was sitting there at the campaign office. My parents were there, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, so all my family is there with me. And then my, my campaign manager and stuff sitting there watching the poll numbers come in. And so the first poll comes in and we won it quite well. It's like, well, okay. Second poll, same thing. So about seven or eight polls come in and we'd won all of them. And I was kind of like, oh, well, I, I guess we'll see. This is possible. You know, and then I pick up my phone and I'm just flipping through Twitter and there's a tweet from the Alberta NDP, David Shepard elected in Edmonton Center. <laughs> so you didn't even see the blue jig. No. The party told you. No, you the, were... <laughs> the, the party tweeted it before. That's how I found out. I was elected. I was like, okay. Kind of looked, looked at my girlfriend. I was like, 
I guess we better head over to the Western. <laughs> it's like, all right. I was just, I was just stunned. So you know, it's did like, did you if, feel the weight of that moment of, oh no, my whole life is not to change? Not really. I mean, at that moment, it was just kind of elation. You know, like uh, let me, let me be clear. At that time, you know, I was. I was a true believer in terms of the democratic process and in democracy. I I got into this with very I don't know if I'd say stars in my eyes, but you know, with you know, with really believing in the importance of this thing I was doing and the need for change. So it was just it was just incredible for me to just realize you know, hey, that I'm part of an opportunity to do something that has never happened in this province before. So if anything, you know, it was that kind of just thrill and elation at that moment. Certainly in the days after, it was kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, you know, I've got some, I've got some big, big stuff to figure out here. But, you know, at, at no point did I, did I, did it feel like something I was afraid of. It just felt like this incredible opportunity that, you know, and a responsibility to, that that I had to step up to. So it was really more about, okay, how do I do this and do this well as much as, oh my God, I don't know if I can. Did you talk to Lori after the election? No. No? So uh, I've never really had too many uh, too many conversations with Lori. I think we ran into each other uh, once when we were up door knocking. And uh, that we, was we've, we've never talked since. Yeah. So you've been elected. You're thinking, okay, opposition. We're going to the opposition. Majority government. Yes. This is a whole new ballgame for Alberta. You're on your history making in Alberta. Mm -hmm. No left-leaning government has ever been elected in this province. Right. Does that tell you that the next four years are going to be hard because you're going to have to earn the votes of the, the trust of every single person? Or does it make you say, you know what, we have a chance to do something new here and we can just do it as we want because the people have put us in this position of majority government. They've entrusted us with their vote. Probably more the latter than the former. Okay. You know, I I really looked at it and said, you know, well, hey, no, we, we made it. We got a majority government. And, you know, at that time, you know, when we first came in, I think there was, I think, pretty sizable support. There was a lot of goodwill. We had that for uh, a fairly good bit off the top, I think, because people generally, genuinely really wanted change. And, and we were, right? It was a completely fresh slate. And so... Largely, what I, at least what I was encountering in the community, of course, because I'm here in the center of Edmonton, I'm not out in rural Alberta and the heart of Calgary or anything. So yeah. it was a lot of hope and optimism. And certainly the communities that I'd known and the folks that I connected with, it was just people were thrilled. They never thought they would see this in their lifetime, a government that truly reflected their values and, and their aspirations for the province. You step on the legislature floor for the first time as an elected official. Mm -hmm. What was that moment like for you? It was pretty amazing. You know, I mean, uh, the last time I'd been in the legislature would have been, oh, gee. So let's see here. Thinking back, thinking back. Ah, would have been uh, <laughs> would have been over a decade, probably 12, 13 years earlier when I'd been there working for a catering company. Oh, <laughs> and actually, no, and it, yeah, it had to be it had to be at least that long because uh, because I shared an elevator with Ralph Klein. 
Wow. Because <laughs> I went to sort of pick up some of the dishes and chafing, chafing dishes and everything. So, so that was the last time. That had been the first and only time I'd ever set foot in the legislature. So the next time I walk in as an MLA. So. And you're in the center <laughs> of the government in Alberta. Like, this yeah. must just, like, for me, that moment would just be awe-inspiring, right? You get to take your seat. You get to right. take the role. You get your pin. You swear yeah. in. Yeah, it was, uh, I was excited, you know, it's and I was, I was, I was raring to go. I was like, I was like, damn, I've been, I've been reading about this. I've been thinking about this. I, you know, I've seen at least in terms of like procedurally and sort of ethically and in, in terms of principles and integrity where the problems have been. So I, I'm ready to come in here and, and change that. So what, what were your issues? What were your, th- everyone has usually three top issues that they always bring into what they want if they're elected. So while you might say that it was a potential unwinnable riding, you won, you must have had an idea, okay, I want to change healthcare. I want to change education. I want to see more investment in this area. What were some areas that you wanted to focus on in your term, in your time in office? To, to be honest, I, I did not come in with a set of policy objectives. Really? I, 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 I hadn't, I hadn't been running so much for that reason. Again, you know, certainly I, I knew some things about some policy, but I'll be honest, it was fairly general and vague. I, I ran because I was concerned, like I said, about those principles of integrity and honesty in government. So you want I was to concerned, that. and I was, I was concerned again about the. I wanted to redeem the idea of a politician, in the sense that people view politicians as people that don't listen, that don't, that aren't visible, that aren't accessible and that you know when they talk about things it's in a way that people can't understand so that was my goal so how did, how did you accomplish that in the first four years well, my my first thing was, you know, I okay. Well, the first thing I do is I got to be uh, be on the ground and I got to meet people. And I mean, I had so many people coming out to me just after that election saying, "Oh, well, you beat Lori Blake. Well, it's been around for eighteen years. You got some pretty big shoes to fill." And I'll be honest, I got sick of hearing that. <laughs> so we so I sat down with you know with my constituency office manager Claire, who's still with me today. I heard her in June twenty fifteen on my birthday, huh. and uh, and I said, "Look, we're going to." find every single event going on in this community over the next three months over the summer and I'm going to be there and we did I showed up at every community league event I could find every single every single thing happening every city of Edmonton event every public event everywhere you know, and put it out on social media, create that visibility. We made a list of every single um, nonprofit organization of folks working in the community, and we reached out and made appointments for me to go and meet them and talk to them. I just, I basically, I wanted to know what's going on. Because like I said, you know, I didn't come in with a ton of policy objectives, but I really wanted to go out and find out what are the concerns, what are the issues here. And then from and election that, times are yeah. usually a good time to learn that, right? It's a good time to introduce yourself. Sure. Here's our policy of what we're going to do. Yeah. You try and learn about what they're talking at the door, but it's well, not the best time. And I mean, I believed, and I, and I believed in the in the general principles and policies in our platform. I believe that, yes, we should go back to a progressive tax structure, that we should have stable, predictable funding for education and health care. You know, that we should, you know, all those sorts of things, those, those core principles, absolutely, I knew what those were. But I mean, on a lot of other things, it's like, I need to learn. Tell and, me what you want. Exactly. And also, you know, just tell me, well, tell me more about, you know, what's the history? How do we get here? What's the situation? What's what brought us to this point? Because I'm a firm believer that you can't figure out where you're going until you know how you got to where you are. 
So I had worked for a while at a job with the Canada Revenue Agency as a bus- at their business inquiries call center. And so I started out working on the phones. And their number one rule there is you never answer a question off the top of your head. You never answer based on assumed inf- on assuming you know the answer. So you very carefully ask a lot of questions, probe, make sure you fully understand what the person is asking about, because a lot of times the real problem isn't the one on the surface. You have to dig down. Yeah. What's the problem? Okay, you go, you use the reference guide, you check the information, you find the stuff, you find the information on the external website, and then you go back to the phone. Are you at a computer? Let me show you. Go to this website, walk them through. See right here, this tells you what the answer is. So, I had learned a whole process of questioning my own assumptions, and I love that. And that was something I tried to apply to everything. So I decided, you know, in so coming in now, okay, what are the issues? Okay, well, downtown Edmonton, no housing, homelessness, people struggling with substance use, people struggling with mental health. Okay, other issues then around downtown vibrancy and trying to build up the community, trying to build up the economics of the community. Okay, so those were some of the initial principal things, and of course, mental health was became a very important thing for me as well. And then very quickly getting invited out to a lot of events with uh, with different communities, all of a sudden realizing, oh, you know, I, I go out to all these different groups of African Caribbean communities and they're just stunned. They're like, there's an MLA that looks like us. And they're so thrilled and it means so much to them. And I hadn't really thought a whole lot about my identity as a black man before that, but all of a sudden I saw how important it was for them. So then that became one of my priorities as well. Do you bring your identity to work every day now? It's, it's certainly a lens through, through which I see the world. So, I mean, it's the opportunities I've had to work with the African and Caribbean communities. And indeed, I, I tried to approach those relationships with a lot of humility because I didn't grow up with it. Right? I grew up in the, in the white evangelical church. I didn't have any of that background or any, any of that experience with the culture. So I, I felt in some respects, you know, for me to sort of kind of go in and, you know, try to claim it as mine would be, you know, a bit appropriative almost, right? So I, but it's, it's given me the opportunity to reconnect with a lot of those parts of my heritage, uh, you know, and recognize as part of my identity. And so, yeah, it is something that I bring with me and I consider now and I'm in pretty much all my approaches. Wasn't going to ask this, but it, it, you touched on the subject, so I want to just just open up about it. Do you think, as a black man, Alberta has a racist undertone? That's I would, a pretty loaded question. I would, I would, <laughs> uh, what, I would yeah. hope not. I, I would, would say what I would say is you know racism is is. Systemic racism in particular is still pervasive in our society. You know, systems were built for very specific purposes and to keep particular kinds of people in power. And I mean, and that just and that's just the way it goes. Those systems were were built by and for, you know, particular people, you know, and that being people who are predominantly Caucasian and predominantly male. And, you know, that's kind of the structure. I mean, so all societies at all times have generally been built on some element of prejudice, right? And they have your in-groups, your out-groups. And so we have come a long ways in terms of that, but there are still real issues that exist. You had that young man, you know, who was, uh, who was sort of sent home from school because he wore a do-rag, you know, and then how his mother was treated when she went in to speak to the principal and the folks at the school about that. That is systemic racism. You know, we still have issues with, you know, um, the, the, the data show that there were issues with predominantly people from an indigenous background or with a darker color 
their skin, they were predominantly being subjected to street checks by police across the province. That is a systemic form of racism. So those things certainly exist. And we've seen the polling data that at a time when we have the return of white nationalism on the extreme fringes, you know, and, and some very extreme varieties of that, and certainly that exists within Canada, that exists in the States, that we have seen a shift in public perception. So this is largely amongst people who are further right on the spectrum, but that there is more antagonism towards people from other cultures and other backgrounds. And I was just reading some recent polling from Angus Reid today that indicated that in Alberta, we have a higher number of people that think that, that, you know, folks that come to Canada from other countries should assimilate and do things the way we do rather than sort of, you know, uh, sort of being... being tossed Yeah, well, yeah, rather than being, you know, overt about their, their culture and their identity. So it is still a challenge that we have. And certainly every, every year when we celebrate Black History Month, as we're about to again, I go back and I, I, I reread some of the stories and indeed talk with folks who experience that here. And remember, it's, it's not that far in our past and it's something we still got to reckon with. People I speak to from the left, from the right, said about 2016, the rise of Donald Trump in the South, Canada became a more divided country. There's no center anymore. There's a left and there's a right. Would you agree with that statement? I would say certainly within the political sphere and in terms of the way, the, in terms of the, the rhetoric, the dialogue and the conversation, it has become much more polarized. Would I say that in general amongst the population there is no political center? No, I would not okay. say that. Because I still run into an awful lot of people, right, who, you know, are are not engaging in politics just because they hate that polarization and they are uncomfortable with that space. And they would be far more comfortable, you know, with being able to have a more moderate conversation. Now, of course, when I talk to a lot of those people, then, you know, you actually talk about core principles. Some of the principles are definitely, you know, more progressive aligned or maybe more conservative aligned. So it's it's always difficult to define exactly what a political center is, right? Is it, is it just watering down everything or is it sort of, you know, some would like to say, well, it's taking the best of both sides, sort of the buffet centrism. But, you know, it's... I think it's much, much harder within the political environment to have a nuanced conversation. So in that sense, we are in a much more polarized environment. And it's... And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, in my view, that has largely come from this sort of toxicity and extremism that has really built up a lot in conservative populism. Now, that's now it's interesting reading. Uh, I've been reading a great book called uh, Enlightenment 2.0 by a guy, Joseph Heath, who's a who's an ethicist and philosopher at a university out in uh, Ontario. But sort of writing about how the human brain works and how we're not really we're not really creatures of reason. We are creatures of instinct who are able to reason. But, you know, reason is not really what dictates a lot of our decisions unless we work really, really hard to overcome our instinct. And he talks about the fact that, you know what, at one point it was left wing politics that was very populist. Right. And sort of off the rails in some respects in sort of the early 1900s. And I was going to say, even the rise of Tommy Douglas, right? Because everyone yeah. thought that was so left wing, so right. out there. That Indeed. But even in terms of like holding some fringe beliefs and stuff yeah. like that. Right. And now but now that's that's pretty clearly swung over uh, on, onto the conservative side. And Do you think it's a pendulum? Do you think it would come back to the left side? I, 
you know, you know I think not. we I think it's some sometimes it does. So I mean you, you would say, you know, that that anti reason kind of, you know, yeah, it still exists on the left. You have folks that are that are very leftist politics who are anti vaccine, for example, right? Or that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So you you that the same sort of thing can live on both sides. But within the broader political sphere, that's I think it's it's you know, more of that is sort of existing in in the conservative movement. And again, it's come from the fringes, but it's I, I find it unfortunate that so many uh, conservative leaders are sort of seem to be comfortable dallying with it and sort of making room in the bed for it and sort of trying to think they can keep it on a, on a short leash and use it to their advantage. But yeah, I think it's dangerous stuff. Back to your time in government. You had four years as a majority government. Are you happy with what you got accomplished? You know, I'm I'm very proud of uh, of our record as a government on on so many things. Do you think you could have gone further? Because That's, I talked to your former colleagues, and they have said, "From I wish we would. If I would have known, if we only had four years, I would have gone. I would have pushed for more initiatives, more programs, more." Outreach. If I knew I only had four years, I would have done this differently. I would have been able to make sure we got our point across when it comes to issues like the carbon tax, when it came to issues about uh, people saying the NDP didn't support the oil industry. For you, do you think that you did enough and you can be proud of what you can, you can pr- be proud of what you've accomplished in four years or accomplished in four years? Um. A little question. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I perhaps have to be a little more careful in answering it than some of my colleagues who are no longer in office. (laughs) But, you know, what I would say is I don't think anyone can say our government didn't do enough. Really. I mean, if you were to sit down and make a list of all of the things that we addressed as a government during our time in government... You know, I, I think we, we, we did far more in four years than any government in Alberta had done, you know, for at least a decade, if not more. Right. Because, frankly, what's one of the major issues we had is that conservative governments had become so fixated on governing for the next election that they just kept leaving. They left so much stuff. So whether it's, you know, in, whether it's uh, in employment schools. rights, you know, and, and sort of uh, rights and and, uh, and employment legislation that it was we'd fallen far behind so many all so many other provinces on the healthcare system, on the infrastructure, on the education curriculum, and just bits and pieces of regulation and stuff that needed to be kept up that they just rag the puck on. So we had a huge amount of that to 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 wrestle with and to, and to sort of and to sort of shovel through, and we did. You know, I think we we were pretty ambitious in a lot of respects on what we took on, and. You know, certainly the climate leadership plan, I think, was incredibly ambitious. You think about where Alberta was, where we brought that in, right? I mean, that's that's pretty major stuff. You know, taking on the whole sort of curriculum uh, curriculum review and, and revamp. Uh, on a lot of these things, you know, I think we were, we, we were pretty damn ambitious. Now, the challenge with all of that is... I think we, we came at it, you know, with with really good intentions and with the, with a really good heart and just as good new Democrats to believe in, we, we've got to do the right stuff and govern well. And we dug in and we did the work. We did not perhaps give as much thought to communicating about what it was we were doing. 
So I think a lot of Albertans really don't know the, the breadth and the depth of everything that we took on as a government because we just saw, I think we, we had folks that had been there for eight years watching all the things that conservatives are doing and just had a, we just just knew the laundry list of all the things that needed to be fixed and addressed and now we were going to dig in and we were going to do it and we did. And you know what, I will say that the, for me, like... I enjoyed the last four years, well, four years prior to last year, but there was things, I, I was able to save more money, The yep. I was okay with paying the climate leadership plan, mm-hmm. like, it didn't affect me, I lived in northern Alberta, and I yeah. drove 120 kilometers every day, and I was like, okay, it didn't affect my pocketbook as mm-hmm. much as everyone thought it was going to, because I was okay with paying that because yeah. I knew that if I'm admitting CO2 I should be paying for that mm-hmm. so not a lot of people that I worked with would agree with that statement mm-hmm. but I was okay with it I felt the fat four years was good so I'm glad that you say that you did accomplish things it's just that communication piece that and was. it's and you got to recognize it's incredibly challenging exactly right? I mean we we came in as a government that wasn't expecting to be elected having to build capacity on pretty much absolutely every single front. Yeah. Right? Now, remember, the conservative machine in Alberta, it had decades to build itself, to develop that expertise, to, do, to develop the people, be able to call on that. So we came in, and all of a sudden, it was like, we had to build all of that from scratch, find all the expertise, find all the staff, scout out people for agencies, boards, commissions, all that kind of thing, right? The policy expertise, not only that, get to know how to do all this stuff from the inside with a public service that, frankly, had never, for many of them, had to work with an entirely new political party. And I'm assuming they did an amazing job doing that, right? Because they are responsible adults and they went in and they're doing a job, right? Because one thing I don't want to, I want to ensure that people don't think is that you're blaming the public service. Oh, hell no. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this was a new experience for everybody at that table. So it's, you know, so it's going to take a, a lot of capacity building and a lot of work and relationship building and adjustment along that. I mean, and let's be clear, you know, within the public service, people have their own objectives and their own sort of intentions and that sort of thing. So you do have to work around some of those things, too. And it's so it's it's a major adjustment period for everybody. But at the, but at the same time, there wasn't time to stop and adjust. No, exactly. you got to hit the ground running. So it's, you know, so could you say, are there things that I wish we would have done that we didn't? Sure. Are there things that I wish we would have done differently? Absolutely. But hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, it's... It's done. Yeah, exactly. So uh, certainly, yeah, I've done my own analysis. I have my own considerations of what I thought our strengths and weaknesses were. And I'm adapting a lot of how I operate as an MLA based on, you know, my own things that I thought maybe I did well or not. And sort of trying to build on that and certainly thinking, yeah, when we have the opportunity to take government again in 2023, there's some opportunities to maybe do things differently. But... Yeah. You know, I try to look at things holistically. I try to appreciate what the challenges are. Critique is important, but only in, in so far as it gives you a path to move forward. So before we talk about 2023, we'll talk about 2019. Um, going into that election, it was tight the whole time. Oh, yeah. Like, there was times where the NDP were up, the times that the UCP are up. But at the end of the day, you don't trust polls because the only poll that matters is election day. What was the ground game in Alberta, uh, in Edmonton like? Were you hearing the positive responses? Were you hearing that feedback that, hey, I'm glad you were out. I'm, I'm glad I, I know you. Yeah. You're not, I'm not comparing you to Lori Blakeman anymore. I'm just comparing, comparing you to David. 
for myself, yeah. for my campaign yeah. here at Edmonton City Center, absolutely. It was it was absolutely wonderful and encouraging. And we had tons of new volunteers come out. We had tons of people who had never volunteered on a political campaign before. Tons of people who came out who are not fans of partisan politics, but they came out to volunteer because we had worked with them. You know, myself, Claire, our team, and they had seen what we were doing. They'd seen us in the community and they appreciated it. They believed in it and they came out. And so, I mean, it, it's it's hard to talk about this, I guess, without sounding egotistical. But, <laughs> but I mean, no, it was for me really an affirmation that the work I did over the last four years, you know, the four years before that had paid off, that we had done the right things and we had built those connections. Of course, Edmonton City Center is probably, you know, one of the top three most progressive seats in the province, you know, Edmonton, Strathcona, Edmonton, Highlands, Norwood, yeah. you know, the three of us are right up there. So, I mean, I, I had that to work with, but I, I do feel like that we made an especial effort to really build relationships in this community, to build that visibility. And like I said, I had a very clear vision of what I thought a politician should be, and I tried to live up to that. And yeah, I think it, it paid off. We we raised our vote count from, you know, from 2015. So we, we won again and you even won in more. a larger margin too, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, so the government... The NDP doesn't form government in that election. You are now in the opposition. Yeah. Probably, if I'm not mistaken, every pundit would say the strongest opposition opposition that Alberta has ever seen. A, because there's former cabinet ministers in there. B, because there's people that know the policies and they know all the inner workings better than the government that's going in. The leader, Rachel Notley, mm-hmm. comes to you and asks you to serve as a critic, the health yeah. critic. What was that like? To have that, because when you think of the NDP, the first thing you think of is healthcare. It was, uh, you know, I'm I'm very honored that that Rachel had the had the trust and faith in me to take that on. I had uh, I had expressed interest. You know, she she did check in with each of us to see what areas we might be interested in, and I had mentioned health, and partly that was the reason I I knew that yeah this is this is a prominent issue for a lot of Albertans, and indeed I conservative governments have that history of attacking the health care system. And certainly I did not trust, you know, the promises that, uh, that Jason Kenney had made on the UCP on the campaign trail. So I knew a fight was coming. And yeah, I, I like being I like being in the <laughs> middle of it. And I, I'm also I'm fascinated by complex systems. I'm, I'm fascinated with learning, like I said, sort of the history of things. How do things get there? How do things get to where they are? And how does everything interact? And health is just a bonanza for that. <laughs> So I, I just I wanted a challenge and yeah and so it's it 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 meant a lot to me that that Rachel had the faith in me to take that on. So certainly there are days now where I kind of go, why the hell did I ask for this? But you know, for the most part, I've really appreciated the opportunity. It's so many amazing people that work in the field, you know. And but yeah, it's it's it was pretty daunting, sort of sitting down there in in May and kind of going, okay, where do I start? <laughs> One of the, if not the most pressing issue today in the healthcare field is one that you just went out on a picket line, if I'm not mistaken, Yeah, is the nurses. They're going through nego- uh, contract negotiations. This government seems to be not playing fair in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. As an opposition critic against a majority government, how do you ensure you can sway the government in a way that will benefit the nurses, but also the government. Does that make sense? 
Are, are you saying the nurses as well as the people of Alberta? Yes. Yes. Sorry, the people of Alberta. <laughs> sure. I mean, which, uh, which technically the government is supposed to represent. Indeed. You know, in that, I mean, but yeah, to, to be clear, you know, I, I I don't owe government any favors. I'm, you know, it's not my job as an opposition critic to to cut them slack. It's quite the opposite. But but ultimately, yeah, in in all the work that I do, I want to the best thing for the people of Alberta, not what is the best thing for myself personally, politically. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. You know, I, you know, when I was talking earlier about when I got politically engaged, you know, I, I kind of neglected to note that, yeah, at least during the nineties, I was aware of Ralph Klein and you, you could not be and be living in Alberta. So I remember seeing tuition double for the students coming into their first year when I went into my second in the music program. And I remember, you know, the layoffs. I remember seeing people losing their jobs. I remember my family doctor picking up and moving to the U.S. Uh, so I remember having seen those impacts and kind of what it cost in the community. So... So when I'm out there, you know, indeed, I was down at the I was down at the legislature. The first time I ever had a protest was on health care. I think it was on Bill 11 that Klein had brought in. But anyways, so, yeah, when I'm out there on the picket line with the folks today, you know, or when I've been out across the province talking to frontline health care workers. And again, just like I approached it in 2015 in my community, I tried to approach it the same way in the healthcare field is go out and talk to frontline workers and ask them, what are the issues? What are you seeing? What are the problems? And so now sort of seeing the attacks this government has leveled on them, how they're trying to vilify them and sort of create that division and enmity between the public and the public sector workers. Yeah, that that it that pisses me off. It concerns me. And let's be let's play. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, though. Right. Mm Jason Kenney's come in. He says he wants to balance the budget. You have to you have to look everywhere. Do you not? Mm-hmm. Do you not have to say everyone is struggling right now? We yeah. need you to not accept a raise. We need you to cut back on things. Sure. Why is that not reasonable? Then? I didn't say that wasn't reasonable. And indeed, during our four years in government, we negotiated with frontline healthcare workers. And indeed, there were no raises. Now, I don't want to say that as a point of bragging, because I recognize that for, for some folks, that would that's, that's incredibly insulting, and it would be. But I mean, we recognized what the fiscal realities were of the province. We sat at the table and we talked collaboratively. So here's, here's the difference, right? We, we didn't come in and attack healthcare workers. We didn't try to talk about how greedy and entitled they were, or how much more they're paid than every other province in Canada. Or, you know, and we didn't come in with our pers- first piece of legislation and break their contracts, as the UCP did. So there's a very much a difference in tone and approach between what our government did and what the UCP is doing, although we're both trying to accomplish the same thing, which is recognizing that, yeah, we've got extremely high costs in healthcare. We need to find a way to control that and to, and to bring in and, and, to get, and to sort of slow that growth. So... We worked collaboratively, supportively. We couldn't give them a raise, but we found other things we could do to sort of help improve their experience in the workplace. That stable, predictable funding, I hear from so many folks, made a difference. Because remember, healthcare in Alberta has been has been a punching bag. Yeah. It's been riding the roller coaster. It's been the subject of endless tinkering under conservative governments. So people were confused. They were gun-shy. They, they were afraid of their own shadow because they don't know from one year to the next what the system's going to be or how much money's going to be there. You can't build a stable system that way. So we stabilized it. 
you know, everybody, everybody with any expertise agrees that was the case. And that's why healthcare wasn't such a big issue in the 2019 election to our detriment, unfortunately, because everyone kind of went, well, it seems to be fairly stable now. Now, there are still things to be fixed. And I get that. But the way this government is coming in, literally attacking workers out of the gate, this premier, is Jason Kenney, is incredibly good at talking out of both sides of his mouth. So he has incredibly caustic and toxic rhetoric on one hand, and then on the other hand, sort of being, oh, well, all nice and polite, right? So the way I have heard him speak about healthcare workers, the way I hear the ministers, and indeed the actions we see them take, that is what concerns me. So the goals and the objectives are not necessarily any different. We, we, we sat down and negotiated with physicians, recognizing that physician pay, it was one of the biggest costs for the, for the government of Alberta, and recognizing that the previous conservative governments, remember, we are living in the healthcare system conservatives built. Yes. So that the contracts they had negotiated with doctors and all sorts of things that was were, starting. Were, were pretty rigid at points, yeah. right? So they were, we had to find ways to how can we balance this system. And doctors were willing to have that conversation, right? Sarah, Sarah Hoffman, she spent two years talking with the AMA and negotiated the, the first real real changes, you know, in savings on the physician file. And again, now this government, instead, they come in, they pass a piece of legislation saying, we can break your contract anytime we want to. Here's 11 proposals that we're going to put through that could cut your pay by up to 30 to 40%. You have three weeks, talk about it, come back to us and tell us what you're going to do. So... That is, again, my concern. You're creating more chaos in the system. And again, we're not going to build a better system by ripping it up by the roots, scaring everybody who's involved with it, and trying to bully them. Would you say that this bargaining that's going on is worse than what happened in the Klein years with doctors and physicians and nurses? That's difficult to speak to. I don't know enough of the specifics to be able okay. to say that. I know what the realities were in terms of the layoffs. Well, you and must those be talking to the nurses as well. Well, indeed. But, I mean, you know, I, I there's I haven't talked with anybody, you know, within the, the healthcare unions or anything who would have been at the negotiating table in the Klein years. Okay. Right. So that hasn't really been a subject nope. of conversation. Like, certainly the layoffs and all that, I'm, I'm aware of what all the impacts were. But I don't know enough of the history to be able to say that the negotiating tactics or anything were worse or more toxic. Well, understandable. Um, the area that you can talk about, though, is what are you hearing from the nurses? What are you hearing from the nurses that the government is not hearing? Well, or not wanting to not, hear. Not willing to listen to. <laughs> you know, nurses in particular, what I'm hearing is the, the main concern is about staffing. And it's just basically that, be again, because of years of that yo-yo budgeting and I'm being unsure which way the funding was going to go, you know, AHS has evolved, I think, a lot of defensive systems around how they staff and how they put people in place. So we've ended up with a bit of a messy system now where you have a lot of people who are casual or part-time, only a few full-time people, and all these different things that interact around how people get scheduled. The, the end result of it being that... When when somebody calls in sick, there's often no one to replace them. So you run shorthanded. So in departments that are already, you know, running pretty thin, as it were. So nurses are feeling stressed. They're feeling under pressure. They are feeling down on themselves because they are not able to provide the quality of care they feel that people deserve and that they, and that they want to be able to provide. So they feel burnt out. They feel put upon. They feel frustrated. And that's what I heard universally across the province, talking with folks, that that is the challenge. 
Um, and, okay, but the challenges of rural nurses and urban nurses are two different things. Uh, they may have the same issues of being overworked, sure. less people, but in more uh, rural settings, you have less pull to play with. Sure. You don't have those, because I know in the hospital that I literally was in when I had my heart attack, they aren't at full staff. They're not at full staff right now. Right. And their nurses are going on mental leave because they can't do their job properly because they don't right. have the resources. And I'm not just saying that's happening now, but even in the last four years. How do we solve this issue? <laughs> I think the issue is going to have to be solved, I think, thoughtfully, and it's going to have to be solved collaboratively. So here's part of the problem. You know, this government, you know, they they are not, you know, as much as they say they are doing this to provide better patient care, that they're doing this to, you know, to build a, a more efficient system and, and deliver better care for Albertans at a better price. Their goal, ultimately, is that they want that budget balanced by 2023. They want to get as many immediate savings as possible, and they want to prove it so that they can get themselves reelected. That is their bottom goal. So we're back so to they, those worrying about the next election only. Absolutely. That, 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 is, that is fundamentally my belief. So what we see then, so the problem then is, so they are doing things that are not necessarily unreasonable to do, again, in terms of negotiating how we provide care. So where do we use physicians? Where do we use nurse practitioners? You know, how do we, how do we involve more holistic community-based care, keeping people out of hospitals? All reasonable things. But they are trying to do so many things so fast with no consultation, no collaboration, basically at legislative gunpoint. It's just there's no way you transform a system this complex that quickly, that thoroughly without doing damage. And that's my that's my biggest fear. And indeed, on the rural health care front, that is one of the biggest challenges. But then again, what, what do we see them doing? We see them now, you know, putting through changes in physician compensation that is going to, you know, disproportionately affect rural doctors and impact that frontline care. You know, we we see them making just these kinds of moves that are just count, completely counterproductive to solve issues. You know, they're taking away, they want to reduce how much they pay rural doctors to be on call at their local ER. So, I mean, they're, they're nickel and diming at every turn to try to, you know, backfill on their, their $4.7 billion corporate giveaway. Got my talking point in. <laughs> uh, you know, and all, and all these other things that, they, you know, that they want to shovel over to, to industries or folks that they're friendly with, you know, or, the, you know, their war room, all that stuff. And at the same time, trying to sort of prove their fiscal responsibility and hit that budget balance. But they're not approaching this in a way where they're actually thoughtfully trying to do what is the best thing for Albertans and build the best results for the long term. So you are coming back to session on the 27th, if I'm not mistaken, the weekend of the 27th, the last weekend of February. Uh, I think uh, the 21st? 24th or 25th. 24th, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so this, this episode airs on the 21st of February. Okay. So my question to you, with your magic hat on, what's your hope for this session? You know, my hope for this session is that we can continue to show Albertans that this government's priorities are misplaced. 
that this is a government that is interested in that's out for its own interests, not those of Albertans. That this is a government that is being, frankly, dishonest and disingenuous with Albertans, and that they are making decisions that are going to do serious damage to our public services, whether that's healthcare, whether that's education, and even on the economic front. You know, whether that's, you know, the damage they're doing to areas where the, where our economy was finally starting to diversify and was starting to gain strength and finally beginning to pick up momentum and how they've stepped on that. I mean, ultimately, we can't stop this government from doing what they want to do. They have a majority, you know, and they and they have an awful lot of ego and arrogance. <laughs> so they've got pretty thick skin. But what we can do, I think, is make sure Albertans understand and see what is happening, that this government pays in terms of their political credibility and their political capital for the damage they're going to do, and that we can hopefully get more Albertans engaged, speaking out, and pushing back. One last area. I know I said it was the last topic, but... One one thing that you have released this year, in 2019, I should say, is your new podcast. Yeah. Well, how did that come about? How does an MLA decide, you know what, I'm going to get people talking on their phones? It, this was an idea I pitched fairly early on. It was just after the election in a first or second meeting as a caucus. And, and Rachel just sort of asked us for ideas. Like, what can we do, you know, now as an opposition? What are some fresh ideas? And I just said, we should start a podcast. And it goes back to the reason that I got into this in the first place. I want to connect with people who are not normally connecting with politics. And I want to break down these issues and, and the challenges we face in ways that people can understand. I want a more engaged, more educated, more literate populace, public in Alberta. And to me, that means we have to find out, find new ways to reach people. The media landscape has shifted massively. Yes. We have far fewer legislative reporters in, in at the, at, than, we, than we had previously. We've seen, you know, that post media, you know, sort of came out and said, yes, we are actually going to try to take more of a of a of a right wing lean. It was, you know, they hired someone to do that and they're moving in that direction. That not to slag any of the report. There are some wonderful individual reporters working here in Edmonton who I deeply appreciate who work for Post Media. They do wonderful work. But unfortunately, we have seen changes and shifts which show that, you know, even for them, sometimes it is difficult for them to be able to do that job well. So all of it is about, again, recognizing the challenges we had during our time in government. We need to find more ways that we can get our message out to people directly and where we can provide that education and that connection. There's nothing more intimate than having someone's voice in your ear. So it's another opportunity, I think, for us to engage, to reach out to people in a broader way. I mean, of course, I can have individual conversations all day long, but it's an, something like a podcast is an opportunity to try to do that at a bit more scale. And you have guests from your caucus? Absolutely. You have guests from uh, stakeholders across yeah, Alberta? Yeah, frontline, frontline uh, individuals, healthcare workers, parents, patients, Bring educators. It. Yeah. Rachel was on there. Absolutely. Episode. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Absolutely. It's 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 a blast. I mean, it is, uh, it is a lot of work, you know, to sort of sit down, especially doing it on a weekly basis, right? Every week it's going to sit down. Okay, what are we going to talk about this week? Okay, who can we bring in? How do we arrange? How do I fit this in my schedule? So it is a lot, but I mean, I I do really enjoy that opportunity. 
opportunity. And so I'm excited for the possibilities. So for anyone listening to that podcast, is called The Herd. Yep. <laughs> H-E-A-R-D, The Herd with David Shepard. Uh, we're on all the major podcast platforms. So, yeah. Awesome. And I think we'll leave it there because I took, I said an hour and I took an hour and five minutes. <laughs> David, thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Thanks, Christopher. And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm-hmm.